0: Boeing deception is alleged in a scathing House report on the 737 MAX crashes, as lawmakers release a broad indictment of the plane maker and the FAA. And how a low census turnout could strip communities of political power. Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg, joins the podcast today to talk all about it.
1: And this census has just been unprecedented in a lot of ways. Even before COVID, this was going to be a big census deal because it was the first one where people could respond online. The second was the citizenship question. Um, It was just a kickoff for a lot of political back and forth about the count that we haven't had in past years.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Wednesday, September 16th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a payment protection program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Crane's government reporter, Aidy Quigg. Aidy, welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's talk about the census. We've, I feel like, touched on it several times, but now we're kind of getting down to the wire. And what are we seeing right now?
1: Big picture, Illinois self-response rate is 70.3%. Cook County is at 66%. Chicago is at about 59%. Illinois has the seventh highest overall response rate in the country which is good. Uh, We don't know how good or what it will mean for a few months when they start doing tallies. But I wanted to dig into this specifically because I've been watching the map of Chicago and the self-response rates, seeing a lot of areas still in the red, meaning that their self-response rates were down in the 20s or 30s. And this census has just been unprecedented in a lot of ways. Even before COVID, this was going to be a big census deal because it was the first one where people could respond online. So that was one complicating factor. And then the second was the citizenship question. It was just a kickoff for a lot of political back and forth about the count that we haven't had in past years. That question ultimately never made it on the census, but it was a precursor for political controversy. And a lot of people said, you know, even though it wasn't included, the damage was basically done. And we're seeing that in low response rates in the Hispanic community. And then COVID of course delayed everything massively The schedule got thrown off even more when the Trump administration switched the deadline date for enumeration, which is basically folks going around and knocking on doors and asking neighbors to try to get a very last count of everyone, basically saying, you know, we were going to end this on October 31st, but instead, let's end it on September 30th. And census officials said, you know, if you end it any earlier, we're going to end up with an inaccurate count and uh, bad data essentially. And that is currently subject to a court hearing, which we're expecting to happen later this week. That will tell us basically whether this thing really does wrap up on September 30th or whether, uh, the census count can continue until October 31st. So it's just been a lot of upheaval in the count this year. And this is always important because the census helps determine where federal money goes It helps businesses gather data on who lives where, who's moving where, how things are changing. And also, uh, for my beat particularly, the remap. So basically how legislative districts are drawn from the U.S. House all the way down to Chicago City Council.
0: And so I want to talk about those specific areas. When we're really looking into citywide data and citywide response rates, what are we seeing there?
1: So self-response rates in majority Black and Hispanic census tracts, they are already lower than average in past counts. They've always been lower. They're usually in what we call hard-to-count communities. We know they were hard to count. But so far in the census, they're 14% below the rest of the Chicago region so far. Uh, That was according to a CMAP analysis from earlier this month. So let's talk about some specific neighborhoods. Some census tracts around Englewood are hovering around a 35% response rate. There's one tract there that is like dark, dark orange, meaning uh, the response rate is below 25%. That's 10 points under its 2010 response. In back of the yards, one tract has a response rate 20 points below its 2010 numbers. It's similar in South South Lawndale and Brighton Park, 13 to 15% below their final self-response total. So that means census workers need to be out knocking doors or talking to neighbors to try to figure out who lives where. Um, we have some sense of who lives where because of ongoing census surveys and things like utility bills, but specifically on the south and west sides, to give you a sense of where they are for remap purposes. This is Chuy Garcia's district, Danny Davis's district, a bunch of House and Senate districts. 13 of Chicago's 50 wards have response rates under 50%. Like I said, around Inglewood, which has a ton of aldermen, that neighborhood is split up so many ways, it's difficult to keep track of which alderman represents what part of the neighborhood. But basically, um, I asked a demographer, what does this mean for the remap? And he said, we're already expecting to lose a couple of black wards and districts because of the well-documented population loss we've had, especially over the last uh, five or 10 years. So initially they were at risk of losing maybe two seats. With a bad count, they could lose two more. There's also a Latino undercount, but we don't know. Basically, we don't know how this will factor into a remap until the remap process starts next year. But if you undercount people, when you're drawing districts, you could draw districts too big that give people less of a voice. So you have to change the boundaries to encompass the people that were counted. But you also have people that weren't counted that you're representing. So basically, it's it's too big. And uh, the people that live there, their voices are diminished because they weren't accurately counted.
0: And what about leadership in these various neighborhoods? What are you hearing from them?
1: So uh, there's no good reason for aldermen to say, oh no, we're going to lose four wards, because that's basically them seeding defeat when they can fight really hard in the remap process to keep those seats, basically. One other interesting aspect of this is that in the past, the people that have controlled the remap are Alderman Ed Burke and House Speaker Mike Madigan. Um, Alderman Ed Burke is not as prominent as he used to be. He does not control the Finance Committee anymore, and I seriously doubt Alderman will allow him to exert as much influence as he did in the past over the remap. House Speaker Mike Madigan has not been charged, but is obviously under a lot of scrutiny these days for uh, the common deferred prosecution agreement, which suggested he was the beneficiary of bribery over almost a decade. I don't know how much control he will be allowed to exert over this remapping process. It is very fraught, very closely watched, and basically done behind closed doors. The other political aspect of this is you know, stakeholders are saying it's going to be more important than ever that politicians are very transparent about the way they're making decisions around this. And one potential complicating factor might be, you know, there are court cases about how lines are drawn and how that impacts certain racial groups, but there have not really been court cases that argue that the data is bad. That could be a possibility in this next remap.
0: And all of that said, and I I want to come back to that Madigan topic here in a second and ask you about a, a story. But on this census topic, given the short timeline, given that it's right around the corner, this deadline, what, if anything, can be done to boost response rate at this point?
1: It's very difficult because there has been, from the beginning, a really consistent push. I mean, going back three years, people organizing around this, like at Common Cause and some of the other groups I spoke to, said, we're going to really deeply engage, we're going to get local governments to spend extra money on census outreach, and work with um, community-based organizations that are close to the ground that can get people to respond. COVID obviously threw that off, but with such a short timeline, and because the people that haven't responded are so hard to reach, there's not a ton that can be done aside from people bringing up the census as often as possible and telling people to go to the census website, fill it out, it only takes 10 minutes, and it makes a really big difference. So I have seen Two or three times a week there's been some kind of census event or a census mention at um, press events. But other than that, you just have to rely on the enumerators that are out there being able to have enough time to go knock on as many doors as possible or talk to as many neighbors as possible to try to figure out those numbers. I will be fascinated to see if um, the federal government concedes that there is a significant undercount. Undercounts typically impact black and Hispanic communities already. I think the 2010 undercount under for the black community was 2.1%, and white people are usually overcounted by 0.8%. And those sound like small percentages, but that makes a big difference when you're talking about legislative districts and how the you know, federal House districts are drawn. I will be anxious to see what happens at this court hearing and anxious to see if enumerators can really get out there and, and get the work done or if it's already too late, as many of the stakeholders I spoke to um, seem to suggest.
0: OK, now to Madigan. Here we are kind of on the on the uh, final stretch ahead of uh, election time. He's definitely, you know, there's all this going on with the ComEd scandal, the the scrutiny that, that you described just a moment ago. And yet we're, when we're looking at the four funds that are under his control, he is, as you have recently reported, still very good at raising a lot of money. Tell me about this.
1: Yes, he's always been a good fundraiser. Um, but this run up to 2020 seems From what I can tell, unprecedented in terms of his fundraising. Right now he has uh, $25 million on hand between the four committees he controls. And like you said, this is despite this uh, cloud of this ComEd scandal that has been really hanging over him since last May, June, July, um, when we started seeing federal raids on a lot of his close associates. I had seen previous reporting on how his fundraising was going well, but I was like, Is it still kind of keeping a pace since this common deferred prosecution agreement came out? And yes, he has raised a million dollars since that deferred prosecution agreement came out, and he's raised $10 This is just for one fund in the year since those raids started. It's incredible, and it's not because he needs to defend his own district. He's never been defeated in his own district. He's represented it since 1971. These are going to help him defend other Democrats in the House and keep his current supermajority. He's got 74 seats to Republicans, 44. So it's, it's a big show of, of power and how much he still means to his Democratic colleagues despite all of this hubbub. Um, if he manages to help Democrats hold on to that supermajority, it's a big way that he can keep a hold of his power despite all the scandals swirling around him.
0: If ever there was a good use of the word hubbub, I think that was it. <laughs>
1: It's a hubbub. The way it has been explained over and over again is this is the tip of the iceberg. Just today we saw State Senator Terry Link um, plead guilty. We've had three members of the Illinois General Assembly leave in the past year or so. Who knows what other names and revelations are going to come out in the weeks ahead. I mean, it's we had a kind of COVID break on court action, and as soon as courts opened up again, it was like charges, charges, charges. I had one source who actually I spoke to for the census story described Fridays as FBI Fridays. So (laughs) that is how I've been thinking of them, too. I wait until 3 p.m. on a Friday and find out Jason Meisner or um, John Seidel at the Trib are tweeting about some new charge or some new guilty plea coming out. There's just a lot more to come and a lot of uncertainty, but the money is still there for Mike Madigan.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, we will keep turning to you for the latest on, on both of those fronts. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk today, A.D. Thank you. Coming up after a July surge, recreational weed sales took a breather in August. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash back.
1: I'm Danny Ecker, and I cover commercial real estate at Crane's Chicago Business. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth.
0: Though Democrats on a House panel conducting an aggressive probe of Boeing earlier this week said some Boeing engineers weren't aware of the issues with the 737 MAX aircraft prior to the two fatal crashes, nonetheless, congressional investigators have issued their 200 145-page report detailing sweeping failures by Boeing engineers, deception by the company, and significant errors in government oversight that led to the two crashes. The report provides the most scathing account so far of the miscalculations that led to 346 deaths, the grounding of Boeing's best-selling jet, and billions of dollars in losses for the manufacturing giant. The report, which is the result of five investigative hearings, a review of about 600,000 pages of documents, Interviews with top Boeing and FAA officials, as well as information provided by whistleblowers, it all makes the case for broad changes in the FAA's oversight of the aircraft industry. The report also said the responses by Boeing and the FAA to the first accident weren't adequate to prevent the second. It also offers a more searing version of events than the sometimes technical language in previous crash reports and investigations, including one conducted by the Transportation Department's Inspector General. You can find way more detail on this story at chicagobusiness.com, but here's the gist. The report cites five main reasons for the crashes. First, pressures to update the 737's designs swiftly and expensively, faulty assumptions about the design and the performance of pilots, what the report called a culture of concealment by Boeing, inherent conflicts of interest in the system that deputized Boeing employees to act on behalf of the government, and lastly, the company's sway over top FAA managers. Lawmakers are drafting legislation to Designed to reform how the FAA reviews aircraft designs and how they oversee companies like Boeing. Boeing said in a statement it had cooperated with the committee's investigation and had taken steps at the company to improve safety, saying in a statement, quote, we have learned many hard lessons as a company from the accidents of Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Flight 302 and from the mistakes we have made, continuing by saying change is always hard and requires daily commitment, but we as a company are dedicated to doing the work. The FAA said in a statement that but it was committed to working with the committee to make improvements. More on this story and many others at Chicagobusiness.com. In a reversal of its decision last month to postpone the season amid the pandemic, Big Ten college football is now set to come back. In a statement, the Rosemont-based league announced the season will resume October 23rd. League leaders, quote, adopted significant medical protocols, including daily antigen testing, enhanced cardiac screening, and an enhanced data-driven approach when making decisions about practice slash competition. And so when the league decided last month to pump the brakes on the 2020 college football season, it was the first major conference to do so amid the health uncertainties of the COVID-19 pandemic. And since college football alone generated almost $1.2 billion in ad revenue for U.S. television networks last year, the decision, followed by other conferences, also threatened a pretty big chunk of sales for media companies. In its statement, the Big Ten said updates on other sports, including men's and women's basketball, men's ice hockey, men's and women's swimming and diving, and wrestling will be announced shortly. Their statement also said said eventually all Big Ten sports will require testing protocols before they can resume competition. And this whole change comes after coaches, politicians, players and parents lobbied conference officials to reconsider, saying that safety measures could be taken to combat the spread of the virus. And while that pressure might have helped, the improvement in testing capabilities ultimately swayed leadership. The conference is the highest earning in the country, with fiscal 2019 revenue of over $780 million, that according to an analysis by USA Today. Most of that is generated by football and men's basketball, which typically subsidize the rest of the athletic department's budgets. Quidel Corporation said last week that it had created an antigen test that could produce results in 15 minutes and had already paired up with schools in the Big 12 and Pac-12. The University of Nebraska recently acquired 1,200 of their test kits. Cranes has learned that Northwestern Medicine plans to build a 75,000-square-foot outpatient center in Bronzeville. The 10-hospital chain said that pending regulatory approvals, the new facility will include immediate primary and specialty care provided by Northwestern doctors, as well as local food options and space for community programming. Details like the estimated cost of the project, the exact location of the new facility, and the expected opening were not provided. Nonetheless, Northwestern's expansion into Bronzeville is not related to Mercy Hospital's planned closure, but it does make the move particularly timely. If indeed Mercy does close as planned in the first half of 2021, there will be roughly 300 fewer hospital beds in the neighborhood, where residents have long been disproportionately affected by both chronic conditions and now also by COVID-19. Meanwhile, the health system also recently announced plans to expand into the southwest suburbs with the acquisition of Palos Health. Just a couple of episodes ago, we talked about Illinois recreational marijuana sales and how much they were seeing big growth month over month. But now more numbers for you. In Illinois, sales rose just 5% in August to about 64 million following those two months of double digit gains. Sales had surged 28% in July to about 61 million as more cultivation capacity and new retail stores came into being. And statewide revenue averaged about 37 million a month during the first four months of the year. As the state scrambled to quickly start recreational sales on January 1st, just six months after it was legalized. And sales began rising in May to just over 44 million before taking off in July. And to be sure, sales are likely to be uneven as the industry ramps up, and given the timing of legalization, the rollout has obviously been impacted by COVID. Nonetheless, the state had hoped to issue 75 new retail licenses in May, but that process has been slowed as well. And the state has not yet set a date for a lottery to pick winners, as the application scoring process that resulted in 21 applicants getting perfect scores and qualifying for a lottery to distribute 75 licenses has drawn criticism and litigation. And that's Cranes Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, A.D. Quig, And be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Cranes Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.